Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, Episode 26. I am your host, Dill, and today we welcome engineer, producer, mixer, and masterer, ugh, that's a tough word, John Altschiller. John is a longtime veteran of the New York music scene and has become the go-to guy for mixing live performances for broadcast and streaming. He was handpicked by Fish and Bruce Springsteen to handle their live downloads, and his experience doing the same for Bonnaroo, Austin City Limits, and other top festivals has allowed him to work for a vast array of major artists like Dave Matthews, Wilco, Zach Brown, Cage the Elephant, and many dozens more. We met at his Manhattan studio, Chiller Sound, and our conversation went a lot like this. And then, um, but what was interesting is I engineered a lot, you know, um, on my own while playing. Like I would get mm-hmm. the sounds with the drums. I'd go out front, and uh, which kind of led me into doing live sound. And then we had this uh, a friend of mine, Rob, who would run it during the show, and, and it was great. We recorded everything. I started taping the dead, um, who I love to this day. That's another whole story, but. Uh, that's what we're here for. Exactly. So what was it like? Let, let's cut right to the, I mean, we can jump all around, but before I forget, if, if, if the dead was one of your favorites, what was it like to have the opportunity to, to work with them and to know them and to... Okay. Well, that brings me fast forward to Bonnaroo. Um, you know, working with lots of great bands that I, I love and, and hustling, hustling, hustling through through my early years and doing a whole bunch of jingles and then doing work and live music. I found myself working um, for, for Superfly Productions who started the Bonnaroo Festival in 2002. And um, I worked with my producer friend who have all these records on my walls, John Alasia, who's now out in California. And was able to not only you know go down to the festival but do a whole bunch of post mixing mm-hmm. um, for it you know as promotional stuff and and releasing stuff with the company nugs.net which I, I work with a lot to this day um, so it was 2004 that they worked out it was one of the first years that it was a commercial arrangement and um, they got some sponsorship, one of which was Avid, the people who make Pro Tools. Yep. And they outfitted a bunch of trailers. I remember it was the year that the D Command came out with the mushroom-type faders. It was a big, big console for Pro Tools. Like, it was one of our flagship. So they brought that, and they brought out four systems, and I was asked to come down as one of the engineers to literally mix there at the festival. So it was like building the trucks. And I bring it up because that was the time that you know, Jerry, unfortunately, was already had already passed, but it was the dead, mm-hmm. and I was going to be mixing it, and I want to, you know, I had been doing this now already for almost a decade, but it changed everything for me because of the excitement around me. Um, so here I am. It was Warren Haynes was the guitar player, and, and Bruce Hornsby was playing piano at the time, and, and it was just, but I was able to solo these artists that you just you know revere mm-hmm. and I remember so after you know there's a whole bunch of approval processes and Phil you know I got to meet Phil Lesh for the first time at that time and he had just come off stage but you know you want to present everything after hey you know I'm, and um, 
I just, I couldn't, it was, it was so like a personable experience, like if, if that's a word, it was, he was so nice, just mm -hmm. so warm, hey, come on in, yeah, you know, how did everything go, how did we do, you know, it was right. all of this comical, and I'm like, oh my God, this is, you know, I'm like, let Phil sing, you know, and, yeah. and, and all of this stuff, and, um, well, it's an interesting dynamic because you actually you're bringing something very important to the party that they need to assess, you know. So it's not like I'm kind of when you start in the story, I'm thinking of myself as a fan meeting uh, a hero, but you're you're part of the process that they need to, you know, they need to be satisfied with. Oh so it's yeah, an, that's an interesting dynamic. Then, yeah. Well, it's, I think it's not. It's more than a dynamic. I think that it's. Um I think that it's an important focus that my, that many engineers and many creatives and many fields miss is that I understand fully, and I think this comes out of a jingle background, a commercial, doing stuff, being having to understand that I don't necessarily own all of the creative ownership that I'm doing this for them. Right. So it has always been my desire on projects, and, I, and I, I've talked to people about this, to not overstamp. So I'm, I definitely am going to the artist and saying, how was that? Yes. You know what I mean? What did you think? What, you know, did I get it? You know, especially at, at a Bonnaroo, as a, at a festival, you don't necessarily get the you know, um, opportunity to pre-discuss anything. In fact, sometimes you don't get to discuss anything with anybody, and maybe it's just the manager. I always find that pressure of, I do a lot of live or yeah. broadcast mixing. That's like what has become my thing. And, uh, and I always think that it's a little weird that, you know, I do my research, you know, but, but all of a sudden you're like, is this the right sound? Am I green when this person wants blue? Right. You know, and uh, I'll, I'll still chase that for, forever. But, uh, but working with the dead, that was the first time. And then over the years, I've had, you know, the opportunity to mix different incarnations of the dead for different various, um, various things. I've never really, at this point, done a very large project. I've been up to do tours, to do webcasting for them. Now they webcast shows mm -hmm. um, in this incarnation. And uh, I've definitely been up to the very end. And... Uh, and, and knock out that gig, but I actually, I think that that is a good thing, and I'm not supposed to get that gig ever, because I think that there is, there's something to be said about not crossing deeply the fan line mm -hmm. and the professional line, because the fantasy of something usually is never the same as the reality. Right. You know, and I've learned that. And often I say that the, my favorite person that I've never met was Jerry Garcia. You know right. what I mean? Because, yeah. I mean, you know, he, his tone, his feel inspired me to give up everything. I used to tour. I mean, putting up microphones, you know, and then you traded tapes. It all just became this, you know, evolving into why I mix for broadcast live music. I always say that because a lot of people are like, look for me at the like front of house position at a show. I thought you mixed fish. I'm like, yeah, but not 
there. <laughs> I okay. mean, you know when you go home and you listen to it and you don't, you know, you go to livefish.com and then you, you get that, that's that's where it exists. Well, it's interesting, what, what is the, like, because you, did you have to go on tour with fish, speaking of fish? That I did. Okay, so Bonnaroo, um, you know, to, to make this a little linear in, in, in terms of what I do, the, the, I worked for Bonnaroo for about seven years and I held the archives. Um, I worked coordinating a lot. Uh, it, it, it had different sponsorships over the years. Fuse Television three, for three years had did broadcasts from there, so we were doing it mixing on-site or mastering on-site, um, uh, working with, with um, whether it was Third Wave Productions, which is a large company out of Chicago that was doing the hiring of the satellites and everything. Mm -hmm. But I'd go home with all the hard drives happily and do all the post-mixing and, and all of that kind of interaction, which was awesome because I got to interact with all the managements and you get to learn and meet the bands, whether it was My Morning Jacket or, you know, which I loved, or Wilco, or right. all of these great bands. They were all one-offs. Uh, Snoop Dogg, you know, Beastie Boys, and which is interesting because now you got to later in my career and it was just like, oh, hey man, do you ever, have you ever mixed, you know, blah, 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 and you're like, yeah, I mixed Mastodon and I mixed Buckethead, you know, and, and, um, and all of these amazing musicians that I never would have had an opportunity to even explore. But then all of a sudden you get inside the tracks and you're like, oh, I get this. You know, tons of, whether it was gang, you know, I did a whole Skrillex project, a whole TV series all through right. that. So fast forward now, 2002, we're at 2009, and um, I'm working at, at Bonnaroo and Fish Plays. Now I had done two, I was the assistant engineer on uh, two Fish records in the very early 90s, Picture of Nectar and Rift, which are up there. Okay. Um, so I had had a relationship with them and I was also taping them, you know, recording their concerts and just, it, it was a very, it's a very long lived organization and very tight people. So I knew them, so, you know, Bonnaroo comes 2009 and, and at that point we kind of broadcast from all of these stuff and Bonnaroo was releasing DVDs which was great because I love mixing and surround um, and I mixed a whole bunch that year that was a Snoop Dogg thing and one of the bands I mixed was Fish and uh, I didn't think anything of it you know I, I mean I did because I really like Fish and, mm -hmm. and I listened to so much that as you know later on it's a part of my DNA and um, project comes out, blah, blah, blah. I'm sitting around uh, maybe a month later at a big holiday dinner, and I get a call from the manager, from Fish's management. And it was just like, hey, John, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. You know, Trey really liked that mix. You know, would you like to come do a webcast of Trey's band? So this was in 2000, late 2009. And so it worked out to say. So from 2010 through 2016, I went on the road and did all of the fish broadcast mixes. So for that, seven years. Um, and that, if you want to talk, I mean, we could pause right here because the difference between the life of a recording studio and a producer and engineer in this world that we're sitting right now mm -hmm. um, in the magnifying glass in a very controlled environment in a very honest environment 
if that makes any sense as I, as I say to people there you know anytime I get an intern you know one of the questions how many paparazzi photos have you ever seen from a recording studio and they'll look at me and they're like none mm -hmm. and I was like that's because you're in a temple this is where the artist is no longer you know the artist the artist is a human being and we're working on their art yeah said and that's to me the environment that this needs to be well on the road the artist is the rock star you know what I mean so there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of different dynamic going on and in terms of a rockonomics let's just pause there and talk about the difference in the money in the creation of music these days to create CDs and downloads and streams versus the buckets of money that are being picked off of these trees all around the country by these artists. You know, so the idea of merchandising, the mm -hmm. idea of these webcasts that I'm doing now or downloads, I mean, you know, it has become just such an important revenue stream for so many bands. Yeah, I mean, they've, they're, they've been forced to, in, a, in essence, you know, with the, I guess, the digital age or, the, you know, the Spotify age. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also think it's that need for new content. People aren't, like, yeah. studying. I think, you know, it's like, what's next? You know, I yeah. remember um, as a taper, and that's a very important part of my life from 1982 to 19... 95 or whatever um, we didn't have these digital transfers you know it wasn't you weren't copying files like like copying anything so I remember well first I had like five dat machines over here I had like I mean my apartment just looked like a dub room you know but you would trade tapes with people but you would listen to them sometimes you would make a few at a time and you'd choose one to listen to but it was a real-time process and with cassettes, you had to be attentive because you didn't want to waste time. Right. <laughs> so you would be like, oh, I'm near the flip, and you'd be listening. But it was a much more musical experience yeah. than today. And I remember vividly when a good friend of mine from college called me and said, oh, my God, this is now, you know, we're back in, in you know, Napster age, all, all of that kind of stuff. But he was like, I just found a site that has every dead show ever. Now, it wasn't ever because some weren't there, but everyone. Right. And I just... I got excited and I went there and I downloaded some shows and they were really crude MP3 stuff that you wouldn't even listen to now. Right. Which is a tragedy because somebody took the time to actually do all of that transfer. <laughs> um, but it 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 freaked me out in such a sense because I had devoted so much time. I mean, I did whole tours like you know I have like I have cassette masters of like years you know which. Still sound really good, which is an amazing thing after thirty years. Um, it's funny. How do you feel about as a music fan? You know, and I, I just feel like everything is so readily available. You know, and I can't complain, and no one's going to complain that their favorite bands are making stuff readily available. But I think when you and I were much younger, and just as you were saying, when you were doing the tapes and stuff, there was some, something a little bit. And maybe this is just being an old guy saying nostalgia, nostalgia, but. It, seemed, it meant a little bit more when you had to work for it, you know? It's like you, could, you couldn't, if you miss somebody being on Saturday Night Live, you, you've never seen them live, you were never going to see that again. 
<laughs> you know, or you'd see that if you you'd have to wait for the repeats to come on six months later. Like, there's no work anymore. Like yep. that I think make you that makes you idle out. Maybe that's wrong phrasing, but that makes you really love a band or invest in a band. It's interesting that you say that because I think it, it it's deep. I think if you look at like Taylor Swift dropping her last record over this last summer there was a lot of anticipation for that. So I think that there is still the excitement um, for certain bands. I do, however, think that, I guess, a, that water cooler talk moments, like even with hot Netflix shows, mm-hmm. people are always at different points. So it leads to almost not, don't tell me, don't tell, you know, I'm not up to that, I'm only at season three, I'm only, and I think that having those spontaneous moments in, in that in that media setting is different. I think that brings me back again to why I absolutely love live music and, and festivals because you are in that moment and, and with music, especially in terms of my world of, of the, the live and, and a lot of improvisational music, is you still get that camaraderie, um, that instantaneous... Uh, moment with the band and with the people around you and to me what I hope is and, and Fish we call it couch tour um, and the people at home that are watching in that moment mm-hmm. you know because sometimes you can have on a New Year's show a lot of people out there you know and, and you see some some shows are being broadcast into theaters these days like the Met even the Metropolitan Opera is, is broadcasting around the country so including people in that moment I think hopefully will 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 come around again, but it is disjointed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how does, you know, any record get dropped now? You know, it's just this, you know. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit more about, like, being on tour with a band. Like, what was, your, specifically what you were doing, like, as you said, you weren't, you weren't head of the, you know, front of the house mixing. Yeah. You were doing the post stuff to be. Correct. Okay, so what, what was it, what's a day in the life for you on, on tour? Okay, the purpose behind it, a day in the life, which, which is really interesting. So, um, the purpose for what I was doing is you, you have, at least some bands might have more, some have less, but you have your front of house mixer who's mixing for the arena or the club or the mm-hmm. you know, stadium. And then you have the monitor mixer who's mixing headphones or, or ear, earphones or monitors for the band. Um, but both of those are not necessarily mixing for a home broadcast, which in the case of Fish is being done to video every night. So there's an atmospheric, you know, you're not putting crowd mics into, into your mix on the, on the PA. You know, if you're, depending on the size of the room, you might have less bass than that night. The drums might, you know, you might not have to amplify that. The vocals might, all of this kind of stuff. Or just the basic EQ curve of the room could destroy a mix, like a, a mix that somebody's going to listen to on their iPods. Um, the band Fish, as well as some of the other bands, now Bruce Springsteen, and uh, are releasing all of their shows. So you can go to online and download any of their shows and in the case of fish you can have it when you're you know before sometimes you're even in your car so a lot of people then stream it and can listen to the show when they're leaving the parking lot and the traffic it's really an amazing amazing system so what 
they found um, was that soundboards, which say 90% of the band still just release the soundboard, you know, and it's kind of like the dead kind of thing, and it sounds different every night, and, and some of that leads to the characteristic of that show, which is definitely valid. Um, there's also audience recordings, you know, every night. Um, but what I would do, so I brought out a full recording setup um, with Fish. It was about, I had a 108 input system. Most of the time we were in the, in the 90 channel count, you know, the drums had 24 channels alone. The room, the guitar, there were a couple of different amps, there's a Leslie, the, you know, keyboards, there were quite a few keyboards, everybody had a vocal mic. Um, so I would be, I had a 300 foot umbilical cord as I called it, and I started with copper for the first few years, so it was literally a splitter, you know, I had a, a you know, passive split to my location, which would usually be some sort of a dressing room. Sometimes it was, it was in like a construction trailer out of the back of the dock. Sometimes it was literally in the back of one of the trucks on the dock. Um, but as far away as I could get from the sound to get as little leakage as I could. Um, and I would mix alongside the show. Oh, wow. And it was a full thing. You know, I would get up every morning. So, you know, when you're on the road, it's really an amazing experience for the roadies out there you know you know props out to to all of you guys um for me my day started my call would be about nine in the morning which is three hours after the riggers and the people who were putting up the lights <laughs> um i didn't even know what a rigger was these are the people who uh do the chains and actually hoist and hang everything and they're brilliant people because they're dealing with thousands and thousands of pounds of weight it's it's really an amazing thing, figuring out some places are wood beams, some places, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, they, get, they get up at like six, and they're the last to leave, so they're not getting to sleep until two, you know, or three. It's, it's a really brutal. So I'd get in at 9 a.m., and you're waiting, and you have to unload your trucks, and each position really on the road is their own little, I call it a little mercenary army. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like lighting has their thing, audio has their thing. Um, you know, merch has their thing, everybody has their, and you know, truck, everything is very coordinated by good stage managers and good production managers. So the first thing you do is you get all your cases. I had nine boxes. So I had a console case, I had a mic pre-case, I had a Pro Tools computer case, I had a work box, I had a utility box, I had traveled with an air conditioner, something I didn't learn for the first year. <laughs> You're in a little room, and then I had a whole mastering rack with me because again, I was doing broadcast, so I was literally mixing. So I was doing my mix, then sending a two track into a whole mastering kind of rack, doing the whole MSD code, so for your geeks out there, you know, um, on the fly, doing all of this at the same time. So I had that rack and everything would get room so hot. So of course, after like, you know, you don't know these things, I'm a studio guy, we have great air conditioning and it's quiet and, you know, I go out there and, and I remember it was almost like the second gig that I did and I went to the production manager and I said, does anybody have a fan? And he was like, well, ask the venue. And it was, I learned on my second job that you have to bring everything yeah. out on the road. Like my r racks right now, I mean, anything can break and I can, <laughs> I'm not, sorry about that with the tape, but I'm knocking on wood. And you really just, it, it, it's that insane but I didn't know that thing so so immediately it's like runner list 
need you know fan right. so you, you get a fan <laughs> then the next year I was like you know they don't care how many boxes I bring and I have now a big air conditioner you know that a stand you know an has an evaporator in it so just stick it out the window and um, I bring that in like a road case in a guitar case and, it, and it's really awesome um, but your day so you do the show show breaks down you know my stuff would break down all my cases in about an hour and then you load it onto the truck so you're dealing with it about 1 a.m. you get onto your bus um, and depending on the speed of the tour you know some tours tour five nights a week some, right. you know Springsteen does every other night so there's never a two you're off to the next location you know and so there's never really that time some bands might be different but the bands that I have worked with production has you out of that city into the next place so the whole fantasy of yeah you were rocking out until yeah. 4 a.m. Yeah. the after party you know, it's really I mean maybe the bands are you know <laughs> But it's really neat, you know, you, you travel on, on nice buses, um, it's, it's a very interesting way of life. Now, talking about the rockonomics of it, when you're on a tour, when you're on a club tour, it's a much different thing, you know, so, so when you start out, this is, that's when, you know, Springsteen or Fish, as I always say, Springsteen, they, they you know, they charter flights, we, we're very commercial, you know, so, that's you know, there are differences in everything. Um, but lower level, and I don't even say lower level, because touring bands, club bands, it's a different situation because then you usually have one bus and you're very much crammed in. Like, the, like right. it, it's almost like it, instead of it being a nice you know, Marriott coach, it's like being in a stowaway where they put bunks in all sorts of different directions and, the, and there are a lot of people living and you lose your privacy. And, and all of touring, you kind of lose your privacy. It's kind of going back to college right. you know, or, or, or the military for... for I haven't been in the military, but I have at the college. So it's kind of like going back to college when you're just with a group of like fraternity brothers and sisters, just going and, and living in this this existence. It's um, it's really wild. Uh, people get paid very well. Uh, I was going to ask that. Road. Who did you have to represent yourself in terms I, of? Yes, that that would be another conversation. I've had two different times in my career that I had management for two different reasons, and for my own purposes, I represent myself. And I think a lot of that has to do with what your goals are. Right. Um, but I found that when I wanted a job, I, w I didn't want money to be like, when you have management, you lose your, your public face. So you have to be in complete understanding with what your manager wants, what you want which might not always be financial success in terms of a job, mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily make sense, especially someone who's hired to make money for yourself and thereby themselves. Yeah. Um, so there were, but in this case, yeah, when I, when I got the fish job, certainly my equity had gone up at that point, so, so there were the idea of getting a manager, and I did get a manager. Um, but what I found was there were clients like Bonnaroo who would call me and, you know, when you get really busy and there's just not enough time in the day, but you have a long relationship with people and you're like, no, I want to do that job. I know it doesn't make any sense, but right. I, I want to do that. And then a couple of weeks go by and you're like, and you call up your buddy and you're like, hey man, whatever happened? Dude, 
that guy was just like hounding me. We don't have, you know, and you know, and you're like, hey man, this is promotional. What happened? You need to be working on this. Right. And that seemed interesting when you first get a manager. It's like, you won't have to think about it. You're just going to call me in the morning and I'll tell you what you should work on that day. Because when you're crazed, you're like, great. Yeah. But then in practice, when you're all of a sudden, and um, so I like to have control. Um, so I work with Fish and uh, we go down to Mexico and I'm, I'm hanging out, being in the game. If I could say anything on this, rockonomics of anything is you need to be there, present as much as you can everywhere you can possibly be because that's how things happen mm -hmm. in, in life. It's just people love you, but people don't always have you on their minds. I think that's the most significant thing I could say as because as an engineer, as a producer, you spend so much time in your own little space but every time, and this is why I love working on festivals, is you go and you see all these people from your past, and it's like time to catch up. But it's not only sincerely a time to catch up if you're enjoying what you do, and you're, but it's also a time to say, hey, what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And then I find that after those things, people come in, you know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, you know, I, I have this thing that I, that I was thinking about. Do you have any time then? Sure, come on in. So I think being in it is really, uh, really the most important thing in the world. And with that said, so I'm down in Mexico with Fish, and uh, Bruce Springsteen had just started releasing his live shows on Nuts, which mm -hmm. does Fish and does uh, does um, The Dead and Pearl Jam, Metallica. I mean, a whole bunch of and Street Cheese and a whole bunch of Disco Biscuits, a bunch of bands that I, you know, associate with. Um, and um, they say to me, hey man, you know, it's like one of those things, you're just swimming, you know, it's like time off between shows. Would you mind if we put your head in the hat in the ring for, for mixing the Springsteen stuff? And of course you're just like, I think my kids were, yeah, of course, you know, not even thinking about it at all, you know, and then my buddy who works for, uh, for Nugs or works with Nugs, um, Micah, great guy, goes on the road with every band, he's a, he's a, we call him IT, but he basically is like a webcast genius. Like, he can get you a signal from anywhere. I mean, I can't even tell you from the, you know, like, so a flock of birds are in front of this <laughs> microwave dish there, and he's, like, got his phone going, and, you know, literally there were times it was like, you should call up, you know, whether it was Verizon or this, and be like, this is like a commercial, what you just did. You have, like, 50,000 people streaming through, uploading through one bar of, you know what I mean? But... A great guy. I digress. I digress. Um, but anyway, you know, he comes in because I work with him closely. He he will edit. So we talk about going on the road with fish. He takes my first set. I, I at the end I call it the everlasting gobstopper. Through all of this gear I bring, I record to compact flash. So he runs in after first set, grabs this little you know one by one compact flash you know disc or, or chip, and goes and edits it so that he can have the uploads all ready to go. Um, so he comes in, he's like, look, man, don't expect to get this Springsteen thing. Don't. Brings me to the manager story. I tell him. And he said, man, you're never going to get that gig. They go to one of my other engineers. Because this guy represents these crazy great engineers, which was like, first of all, wait a minute. 
we pay you. You've got to be on my side. <laughs> anyway, um, I ended up, uh, I got back at the end of January. He had started his tour and um, did a mixes. It was like, hey, man, can you, can you do this? And I was like, I mean, when that hard drive came, I can't even tell you. It was just like, this is real? You know, Danielle um, Warman, who, who's an engineer here at Chiller, she's been here for 10 years, is looking at an apartment. So we'll see if she makes it in here. But we're looking at each other like, here it is. Let's just do it. And uh, so we spent four days on, on this mix that I would usually spend a couple weeks on. In fact, I had, it was a Sunday night, and I was like, hey man, you know, I think I'll get you the mix tomorrow. Like, can you get us the mix today? And I was like, okay. And three days later, I was at the garden meeting John Landau, their, their manager, um, uh, Jenna, Bruce's manager, who was an awesome human being. I, I, you know, really just, I admire their whole crew, very smart, balanced yeah nice people and it was it's interesting because they're it's it's John Landau management manages Springsteen you know and it's a and it reminded me of old fish when they had their own managers fish is now managed by red light management which is a real I love them dearly yeah. <laughs> and publicly I want to say I love them dearly <laughs> um, but it's a different feel when you have one band one management it's just like yeah. everybody knows what's going on and there's just this this purity to it, you know, and Bruce is just, I mean, the more I, you know, gotten into it, because while I was, as an engineer, many times in, in my career, hey, can you listen to this track, and it was a Bruce track, you know, I want something like this, I like the, you know, yeah. the, the bells here, I like this kind of stuff, so I'd studied it randomly, but now, having over a hundred shows that I've done <laughs> mixed under my belt, it, the depth of his, his, his music is amazing I feel blessed I mean I I'm not that religious here but I mean yeah. I feel just very fortunate to be able to work on his stuff and that all came about because you're swimming and you're working with this other and and again so that to me the rock and onyx of everything is just to, to be in it and be very good at your craft and dedicated and honest and humble um, and I'm nothing but humble now so now it was uh, the beginning of January um, 2016 and knock on wood, I'm, I'm still doing the Springsteen thing. Uh, we, we release a archival show every month, um, every, the first Friday of every month, through Bruce Springsteen, live Bruce Springsteen.net, mm -hmm. and that's through Nugs. Okay. They're, they're the people who facilitate all of that in the streaming. And uh, it's stuff like, it's amazing. This past month, you know, the, um, we released an acoustic show of Bruce playing at his old, um, high school, you know, parochial school. And as he started it out, he's like, you know, my friend asked me, like, why are you doing this? Are you doing this as revenge? And it was a dirty show. I mean, it was really <laughs> awesome, you know. But then you realize at the end that he totally did this to raise money for the school. Right. So, and, and it was in the gymnasium. And it's, not only is the performance amazing, but in Bruce fashion, the cause is amazing and his freedom of expression and appropriateness was amazing. You know what I mean? Like, have, you, have you been lucky enough to see the Broadway show? I have been. Um, and I thank you again. Um, <laughs> I got a call about, so, so he, they opened the show, it was a Thursday night, and I get a call on Monday from George Travis, their production manager brilliant, one of the nicest gentlemen. You, 
you ever see people with like parsed lips, you know what I mean, and they just go down? He is the absolute opposite. He just has a permanent smile, and this is a man who must be under, I mean, I've known many yeah. production managers, must be under so much stress that you and I can't even comprehend this amount of stress, you know, as world tours, and, right. and I think they have a, a crew of 70 people or something like that. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing thing, but the nicest guy in the world. But he calls me and he's like, hey man, we're going over our list of like people for opening night and like, I didn't mean to like forget, would you be interested in going <laughs> to the show? And then I, I felt really terrible. I said, absolutely. But Kim Danielle, who, who works with me all the time, who's been mm -hmm. working with me throughout the whole fish, started with me at the Bonnaroo time when we were doing the archival stuff. I said, can Danielle and, and my wife join? And then I realized how bold it was to like, plus ask two. for that. <laughs> yes. But they were incredibly accommodating, which was really amazing. And, and, I, and I, I'm very appreciative. Like, but it's one of those things you're like, okay, I really want to bring my wife because, I mean, and that's legitimate, yeah. you know, but Danielle's just given two years of her life <laughs> on this, so, like, she should be there as well, but it worked out great, and um, my funny story there is, um, so, of course, then you feel like you're this big shot, you know, and this is a big deal, and, and you know, I go, and, and George says, okay, you can pick your tickets up at noon the day of the show, you know, at the box office, you know, so I go, and I pick up, and, and uh, you know, I'm not one for, for where I sit or do anything. And my wife's like, pick him up. I was like, got the tickets. I text her. And she's like, where are we sitting? And I go and I look at the chart. And I'm like, and I really smiled by the smile that you can't see on, on the, the recording right now. But I'm smiling. And uh, I was like, we are right in front of the back wall. <laughs> you know? And it, of course they were. You know what I mean? And, um, but it was amazing. Um, the intimacy of the show, because I had just come off of mixing all of these huge stadium shows, but I'd also had just mixed an acoustic show, like this show was um, at, at Freehold, New Jersey, that I just did for the first time. And the intimacy and meaning blew my mind. Like, I just, you sit at the show, and his shows are very long. The Broadway show's about two hours, but the shows I've been mixing are three, three plus, close yeah. to four sometimes. I should charge by the hour of the show. <laughs> I swear to God, but it works in your direction. You know, it goes either way. It goes either way. Um, but I was really blown away. And, um, and I was also blown away because, and I think that the professionals who listen to this is, sometimes we're very separated from the glory of who, who and what we do, whether it's a filmmaker, you mm -hmm. know, you're not really seeing all of the crowds coming out of the theater on, you know what I mean, just awestruck by it, or, you know, most people don't know, certainly people don't know who I am walking down the street, we're, a, we're behind the scenes kind of people. Um, but the f opening night was a real star fest. You know, I've definitely done some, some <laughs> red carpets just having to to be there, but this was kind of, it just, it was really, really neat, and coming out, there was a lot of press, and it was, it was kind of neat, so, that was the first time I went, and then, when he, the engineer, I mean, the you right got to go the twice? Street, I got to go twice, nice. because, now, this, this was an even <laughs> a better seat than the one that was on the back wall, because this was taking the usher's chair, and <laughs> just sitting, no, um, you know, I like sound, I like mixing Bruce, and I'm doing all this archival stuff, and the whole camp and crew is up the street, so the um, 
their live sound guy, John Cooper, who's really brilliant guy and you know really good mixer. Um, he called me. We we're just talking about stuff, and I was like, you know, we should grab some lunch. <laughs> we're at lunch, and he's like, great, you know, and we meet, and it's like, wow, that took me about five minutes to get here, and I, you know, I was like, you know, maybe I, I should call George. Would it be possible to go to the show? And of course, I, I called George, and I was. It was one of those things, it was a Friday, and I was like, hey, George, I wanted to just get in touch with you about, you know, coming to a show in the future. And he, of course, thought I was like, coming tonight? Well, I mean, you know, but, and I'm like, and immediately you're like, no, 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 sometime next yeah. week, you know. At your convenience. You know, but he was like, tonight, and I, I was like, I never, and so, of course, I followed that up with, I never really want to rattle anybody. I won't do that. So, no, don't do that. Never call people the last day. <laughs> when I was on the road with Fish... Man, you call me a month before the show. You know, most um, friends and families are not comped anymore. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. hard to, to comp. You, the bands cost the band too much money in, in a way. So most of them are. You know, you get ticket request forms. You probably have seen or, or had these. And so I'm always just like, look, you call me a month before. It's not like I'm asking the band to like give you a free ticket. So you know, you call me the day of the show. I got a lot. So I appreciate that. And everybody listening, don't bother production people the day of a show. They've got a ton of things to do. Um, but anyway, so I went and I sat up at the, by the soundboard, which is the very top of the theater, and it was phenomenal. Now, this was just about a month ago now, so the show has, has run. So the self-editing, the flow of the show, for me, as someone who now <laughs> listens to Bruce critically was amazing, just brilliant. So I, I, I and, and I say to my friends, and, and no, I cannot get tickets, which is just an amazing <laughs> thing. That's a whole other story. But um, it's worth going to. You know, I'm not saying that people should scalp them, yeah. but if somebody, if a friend of a friend has a ticket and it's the ticket price, which is still very expensive, you know, it's just to, just it's brilliant. It's Hamiltonian. You know what I mean? It's yeah. kind of like Hamilton. I don't know if you saw Hamilton, but it's, you know, my parents, I'm trying to convince them to go um, just because there are certain things that you're like, no, no, this is actually brilliant. This is like something you, you really want to intellectually see. And I feel about that about the Springsteen show. And if you care about him, it's really autobiographical and wonderful. And, and about life. Yeah, I love how he opens his, uh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say how he opens, but, but he said this a whole bunch in, in his shows, and, and it's something I feel sometimes, which is, I haven't worked a, want an honest day in my whole life. <laughs> I can't necessarily, I've really carried a lot of gear and done festival work, which is an honest day's work, but, um, but this business, the music business, is amazing now. What's interesting is, you, you know, as, as you're talking about you know, an intimate setting that Bruce is in, and the, the school and the stadium, like all the different places that you as a live mixer need to deal with. Um, when I was looking at you know your bio and saw that you did like Red Rocks and uh, Central Park and the Washington Mall, they're all so diverse. What's, mm -hmm. what, which one's the most challenging? Well, you named three outdoor venues and I'll say mixing live. Mixing live for broadcast. <laughs> Outdoor to me is much more difficult than indoor um, as a rule Red Rocks and each of them Red Rocks has a lot of reflections a lot of early reflection stuff So it's very hard to get a big open sound there 
Okay. But when you have an open crowd, you're dealing with phase swirling around. So when the wind comes, it actually moves the, the sound. So if you put too much audience mics, you know, or too much crowd in to give it that live feel, of course, because outside also you have less, you know, the sound just dissipates much quicker than if mm -hmm. it's in an arena. Um, but a lot of it depends on the mic and, and the crowd. Um, I could tell you each of those different different places. I remember the mall, you know, the gigs, which was a ton of different bands there, but the crowd was so large that it was just one of those like speech, ah, you know, yeah. roars. But again, you know, when there's wind, sometimes it, it carries the music and kind of creates this phasey. If yeah. I played it for you, well, you would exactly, know exactly. Like you said, turning off the, yeah. the fans. Yeah, um, 100%. And uh, so, so the outdoor thing, Red Rocks is a nice tight sound usually, and that's most likely why anytime you hear anybody mix from Red Rocks, because it's just, I mean, it's so beautiful, but it's like mixing in a, in a, in a bowl, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so beautiful, though. Um, mixing in stadiums is fun, but there's a big reflection off of the back. Um, so, but you hit upon really what I'm doing a lot. I mean, I find that, um, say you're on the road with the band Fish, you know, you have your template, you know, you have, right. so most of the time your close mics are sounding similar. You know, there's a little difference between, you know, what kind of stage is it? Is it a cement stage? Is it a wood stage? But I would spend most of my time preparing for a show during sound check, working on the crowd, the ambience, you know, trying different, in fact, delays to, to try to line up so you're getting more of a solid sound. Right. Um, which is what they do with PAs now, too, in terms of, you know, delaying different speakers at different places so that you can have a solid sound, whether you're on the lawn or you're on, you know. Um, um. One more question before we get into what I, I have the final five, which is the same five questions everybody gets. But the one last question is, if you do like a, uh, you know, a live recording for release, going back to my childhood with hearing that Kiss Alive wasn't actually alive and, you know, Cheap Trick at Budokan was manipulated. Are you, are you still doing that? I mean, you, you must be not forced to do that, but is a live show just, well, I don't know, I guess... I'm trying to give you an output. It really depends on the project that you're doing and what the artist wants and what the intention of the release is. Um, for the Fish live tracks, I mean, it was warts and all. Right. You know, it was just there's no time to fix anything or, or, or this and that. Um, and I think it really just, it depends on the band's wishes, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, sometimes there, if you're working on an archival release for a band, right, something that, you know, nobody knows what it is, and there's a false start, mm -hmm. do you take it out, do you put it in? That's big, and I've absolutely called archivists, management before, and been like, okay, what do you want to do? If it's to video, what is the video editor doing? You mm -hmm. know, what, what are, you know, because a lot of times you're taking out banter. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, it's and some of it's just, but a band, you know, bands like the Dead, bands that are releasing everything, yeah. you know, it's, you're kind of, they're almost accepting. They want that push and pull from each show. Yes. So, so it's like, yeah, we totally remember you messed that up. And I, I tell you what, I, there were times <coughs> in, in, my, in my life that I would fix stuff and have been wrong. 
not wrong in terms of the note was wrong, but oh my God, they then played it there and then repeated that mistake down the road. Therefore, it was wrong, but you shouldn't do that. And, and the way I believe it and the way I, I teach and I'll talk about it is when in doubt, leave it alone because it's not yours. Yeah. Um, but there, are, there are, are projects that I've been on that, I mean, I'll get 10, 12, 14 pages of, okay, when I go to this here, I'd like to really do that. In the base here, when that goes, I mean, so it really depends on, on, on what it is, you know, <laughs> whether it's gonna, you know what I mean? And, and a lot of that was earlier in time. I, I think that when you, when you used to have a live, Frampton Comes Alive, or, or, or the big one, uh, you know, Waiting for Columbus, Little Feet. These were moments, and again, we went back to, people had that album. It wasn't like Little Feet then released their entire tour. Yeah. So now that there's just so much going on, and so much much media, I mean, you know, even, even with time, I remember when I started mixing live stuff, you'd have like a month. You know, and you had the budget for that month. Yeah. And now it's like, really? Can you get it to me by the end of the week? Yeah. You're like, um, you know, I can just push the faders up, and it can be ready whenever you want, but it won't sound good, and we won't get the next job. Yeah. You know, and that that it's a battle that I have with that. Give me time, it'll be the same amount of money, but then maybe we'll get the next gig. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's an amazing. Everyone be happy. You know, sometimes I wish I were an accountant. You get to that bottom line, you're like, nope, it's, uh, you owe this amount yeah. of money. Whereas I'm like, is it over? When is over? You know what I mean? Like, you know, is it done? Well, when is it due? It's due now, you know? Um, but, yeah. Hope I'm, All right. I hope Fair I enough. Yeah. progress too much. For sure. Okay, uh, final five are mostly kind of frivolous questions, but okay. uh, entertaining nonetheless. Uh, first one is what's your most valued sorry your most valued music related material possession I do, I've been rephrasing that a bunch of different ways <laughs> number of shows I had to write it down wow that just spans so many different areas of music but I want to say if your house is on fire what do you take with you or what do you what do you want in your coffin? Probably this guitar. This is the S three thirty five. Just because I've it's been through everything. You know what I mean? It's it's just you know with me. But the funny thing is because it's a sentimental thing because it's gone. I've lent it out for years to musicians. <laughs> but like, no, it needs to be in great hands. It can talk. Um, but really, it, it, it's funny. Um, when I graduated college, I, um, I got an Accuphase amp. It's an old company, old, totally high, high five company. And I've listened to, it's the only thing that I completely, tr I trust, I have, generally I have been listening to these since the 80s, for <laughs> sure. But, you know, you have an amplifier from when you were a kid listening to music, and I've switched speakers and this and that, but that amp has delivered me, I mean, since, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, so on a personal sure. level, that's really inspired me. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> a Sony D10 Pro that I used to tape all my shows with from '87 to '92. You know what I mean? Like those, those kind of. And, it, and it's funny. It's the technology, not for the technology, but always for the experience that I had 
yeah. during that period of time. But this guitar I've had since you know, since the beginning of, of my playing. Gotta get a, I gotta, I'll get a snapshot of it for you. Which uh, is really a episode. funny story too, because I really didn't know anything. I bought it, you know, used at a guitar store. I was looking for a guitar, and and uh, some guy brought it in at the time to sell it. It was his son's, and it was under his bed because it, you know, the guitar is older than me. Um, but um, it was, God, it was in it around college. I was working in the mailroom of, of a company in New York City to make money. And I called up and I was like, I need to refinish this guitar. Because if you look at the back, it's really worn out. Like it's got a lot of belt wear and, and mm -hmm. you know, it had definitely been played a, a ton. And my friend is like, you're not going to refinish that. Call Gibson. You know, Gibson was literally up the street, right. you know. And I called Gibson, they're like, can you give me the serial number of that guitar? And I was just like, yeah. And they're like, you're not refinishing that guitar. You're not touching that guitar. And, um, you know, it's a 69 with a, with a 70 neck, you know, so it was made. It's a TDC, which means it was made for someone. To this day, I don't know who it was made sure for, um, which doesn't really matter in my life. Because, right. you know, you realize that everybody, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make it any more or less valuable. But to me, I now had it, and, and I hope to give that to my kids you know it's one of those okay. things that I sell gear all the time you know what I mean I buy and sell like recording stuff but that guitar will be with me keep her that yeah I like it so we won't put it in my casket we'll give it to my kids <laughs> we'll give it to Allison who's gonna you know be a star that's I just bought that guitar for um, question number two is if I were to give you a check for a million dollars for one charity which charity would you give it to make a wish what I have seen that organization do, it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, question three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? There is a song by the artist Tom Hamilton called Never Be Loved Like This Again. Not only is it a brilliant song, and of course you need something that you produce because <laughs> you know it so intimately, but he and I talked about it. He wrote it very early in, in, in his career. And I, I can't tell you exactly what the song means at all, mm -hmm. but it really painted a really nice picture of life mm -hmm. and about the simplicity of life to the point where I just remember saying to him, and I'm working with him on a project starting next week, so I know this hasn't hurt our relationship, where I was like, how did somebody so stupid come up with this <laughs> Something so beautiful. Song? But actually, it's not stupid at all. Um, but it, it really, um, you know... It, it really kind of has to do with our own personal perceptions about how we're such the superstar who saves the day, but at the end, you know, it's just, I'm very simple. It's a good one. But it's a, yeah, it's a good one. Or, or nothing at all. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question. But I shouldn't say that. I want to go back. Okay. I want a gospel choir at my funeral. Like, that's how I want to go out. I mean, not that I'm, you know, Baptist or anything like that. Right. But I, I think that there should be. I want, so I want to re, I want to rephrase but, that. Although you is, should use is, both okay, of these. I will. I will. I, I came out of the sentimental I'm, moment, but now I've, I've transcended that. But moment. I want to paint you the picture. This isn't your funeral. This isn't you lying in an open casket. Oh, this casket. is me at the pearly gates. This is you. This clouds is, around you, blue sky. You're taking the escalator. You're reaching the pearly gates. What's what's the soundtrack? Dude, it's Jane's Addiction. 
It really is. <laughs> it really is. And it, and it just has to do with the... Uh... Which song? <laughs> like, I mean, I, I only go to the hit. Nothing shocking. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just because I think, I think at the end, you know, it's funny. I, I came out of this really sentimental thing, and I think that Tom Hamilton piece is just beautiful. And, I, and I've often, you know, at some times when you, when you have those low moments in your life, you're like, jeez, this is really, you know, says, says what I want to say. But then again, I think that in, in the end, you know, there has to be this um, <laughs> this this ode to uh, to the darker sides of things, to 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 the things that that we all get into music for. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. For those things that are underneath the rug. <laughs> I like that. And nothing shocking. It's good. Uh, the flip side is that of that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. And this I know as as a professional in what you do, you may not be able to. You might be you know, burning. You might really be burning a bridge here. You say that because I'm not going to say the exact only one song of what would absolutely be on repeat in my life. Um, wow. Uh, youth orchestras. What is it? Youth orchestra. Just in general, or is that a track? From a no, it's it's it was just in general. It's it's a joke to myself. Well, you know, it was. Um, I don't know if you have young children. When I had young children, and you go to oh, the whole band, and and there was one day it was like really the. I think they start in fourth grade. When I said, you know, maybe fourth graders shouldn't play fretless instruments in public. You know, I'm not saying that they shouldn't yeah. practice and be amazing, and I'm sure they're amazing. So I have to take that back. But um, I took a reprieve until middle school. Okay. And, and so you orchestras, but um, what else? What was I mean? I like so much. I wanted to say like Yanni, you know. But the truth is, I love Wyndham Hill. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like so. I mean, I think that that's a part of the need to do it. I, there's really not. I've done classical and jazz, and yeah. and there's really something that I find in everything. I can't say that I listen to everything, um, but man, like you ever listen? I mean, I don't know if you're a metalhead, but I don't choose to, I mean, when I was 13, I played and we played Judas Priest and all that, but I didn't understand music the way mm -hmm. I do it now, do now. But these guys shred, like, you know what I mean? Like, this is, these metal guys are amazing. Yeah. Anyway, so I, 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 I would take it, I just want to take the dead with me everywhere. You know what I mean? I still, mm -hmm. I mean, Sirius Radio and that dead channel make driving car trips, I don't care if it's 10 hours or 10 minutes. That might lead into my last question, which is probably a difficult question given your history, but what's the best live performance experience you've witnessed? God, I've been a part of some <laughs> significant experiences in different worlds. Yeah. So I can only speak from my world as a fan. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I go back to the dead. So when I was in college, I was really into it. Like, like people are into fish now. People are into Springsteen. I didn't know that there were huge Springsteen fanatics like there are fish fanatics. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, again, I lived... When you get into these band worlds, when you live in that little narrow world, you kind of think it's the only thing there is. Which could lead me into the road again, because I did a tour with Zach Brown Band recently, and there were so many similarities to the fish world, except for who's what band got on stage that it was an amazing experience um, 
But what we were saying about with the dead. Um, so the dead announced that they were going to play. So when you get really into these bands, there's certain songs that never get played from other eras of their time, and you're just like waiting for that. The White Whale. And, you know, yeah, for the dead it was Dark Star. Like, where's the Dark Star? There were shirts, there's everything. And again, I got on board with the dead in the very early 80s, so from that period of time on through when they played as the Warlocks, which was in 89, they announced two shows in Hampton, Virginia, and they were in the the Warlocks was their name before the dead. And this was all before Touch of Grey. So this was all before the whole tie-dye phenomenon in a pop culture sense. So mm -hmm. it was really all word of mouth. You know, you ordered mail-order tickets. It was not even Ticketmaster stuff. It was all. And I went up, and we all had the expectation that something spectacular could happen. And something spectacular did. They broke out the Dark Star. They it was the most inspirational playing that I remember shaking to this day. When I listen to that show, I get chills when the song starts. Mm -hmm. And I met five of my closest friends to this day then. Really? Okay. That night. <laughs> and it's a testament to, to the whole live music. People think, oh, I go to this concert. And that's the thing about the jam scene. So if people are listening, we could have a whole web, and I would invite some other people. But it's these music communities. But when you get in, in, involved and it becomes that existence, it can be so powerful, that experience, that that joy can, it, be, it was an event. It wasn't just, you know, I went to see Eric Clapton and he played his set list here in New York and wow, he's a really good guitar player and then right. tomorrow night, you know, I understand Spinal Tap. <laughs> you know, hello Cleveland. I can't tell you how many times I can't. And I was behind the scenes to say, where are we? It's actually, it's actually funny when you play Kansas City. There's a sign right to the stage door. I think I have a picture of it somewhere, and it says, "You are not in Kansas. You are in Missouri." <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like because it's so easy. I bet. You wake up in a parking lot on a bus. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, there you go. The dead at Hampton in, in Italy. I love it. Well, John, thank you so much for giving thank me your time. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. I hope that uh, you got some stuff, I, but thanks I, for coming out, and um, you know, keep working, love it. For sure. I have to say, it's a lot. Thank you. Thank you. All right, a big tip of the hat to John Altschiller. For more information on John and all he's involved with, visit chillersound.com. As always, I'd like to give you all a friendly reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, as well as follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be back next Tuesday morning with a keyboard player, arranger, and producer who's had the unique opportunity to fill in for Paul Schaefer on The Late Show with David Letterman. So please join us then to hear that story. Thanks again for listening to Episode 26 of the Rockonomics Podcast. That's it for this time. Good night, Cleveland. Good night, Cleveland.